This morning, we're looking at Psalm 138. And so, that's on page 10 of your bulletin. If you're willing and able, would you stand as I read God's word for us? Psalm 138, a psalm of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. We're continuing our study of the Psalms this summer. And just to remind you really what the Psalms are, in some cases they're to be instructive. Uh, In other cases, they're just merely emotive. The Psalm that we're looking at next week will be a case like that. But the Psalms, in many ways, are kind of like the sports of the Bible. They're kind of like the sports of the Bible. I spent some time yesterday watching live streaming the uh, Clyburn Junior International Piano Competition in Dallas, Texas. Now, how many of others were doing that? <laughs> yeah, nobody, right? So at the end of each performance, you know, people would clap, everything like that. And it was great. I mean, I didn't clap because I was live streaming, and it's weird to clap if you're live streaming and not watching it live. But that's kind of how that works in classical music, right? Um, There are other things like in church, like the ladies read, and I realize this is a Presbyterian church, like the ladies read, and that was awesome. I loved hearing the different languages. And it was almost like, can we clap? Can we clap? And then Will gave us permission. They're like, yay, all right, great. The Psalms are like the sports of the Bible. Because in sports, what do you get? You get intensity. You get yelling and screaming. If things go well, you get cheering and just loud exultation. If things don't go your way, what do you get? You get weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the Psalms, it takes us much like in sports, through all of the emotions possibly in one single psalm. 
So the Psalms are like the sports of the Bible because they give us true emotion. The Psalms are prayers, friends. They're not here to, let's say, per se, to tell us this is how your biblical theology should be instructed. They're not here to say, well, this is how this works. They're prayers for us to use and for us to be able to find ourselves in them. For us to be able to find ourselves in them. So this morning, we're going to try to do that. We're going to look at Psalm 138, and we're going to try to look at three things. We're going to look at help for one man or help for one individual. We're going to look at the light for the world, and then we're going to look at help to the end. Help for one man, light for the world, help to the end. So we start out, help for one man, in verses 1 through 3. And if you've read the Psalms much, you can get a flavor for what type of psalm it's going to be just from the first few verses, right? In in Psalms of Lament, immediately the psalmist goes into, my enemies are at my throat. But in this psalm, you can tell it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of David, which about half the psalms are. He jumps in, I give you thanks, I sing your praise, I bow down, I give thanks to your name, you answer me. What's interesting is some of the context in which this was written. It was likely written when David was on the run from Saul. Do you remember, in Old Testament history, Saul was elected king by the Israelites. He was the first king. The Israelites said, God, we want a king. We want to be a nation that has a king because all the other nations have kings and we don't have a king. So they got Saul. And Saul was king and then God told the prophet to go to the house of David and one by one went by David's brothers and said, this one will not be king. And finally got to David, the smallest, and said, this one will be king. So, you have a king installed, let's say, by the government and a king installed by God going on at the same time. That doesn't sound like a good political system, does it? So what happens? Saul tries to kill David. If the other king is out of the picture, Saul gets to be king. So Saul is pursuing David in 1 Samuel 26. And David is feeling this pressure, and yet he is responding in this way. Because he knows his God is true. Take a look at verse 1, toward the end of it. David is saying, he says, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing you your praise. See, David was actually given an option in 1 Samuel 26 of turning to the other gods. David would be king over here and Saul would be king over here. And yet David ultimately rejected that. He did not want to be a part of the gods, little g gods. But what does it mean here that David says he sings and he gives thanks with his whole heart before the gods. He sings their praise before the little g gods. What's he trying to communicate to us? Well, the first thing that he's trying to communicate to us is that these little g gods are actually no gods at all. That they're not actually gods. But the second thing, and this is a little more upfront, what he's trying to communicate by singing in front of these so-called gods is that he's mocking them. 
He is mocking these so-called gods. Now, why would he do that? Why might he do that? If you can kind of put yourself in a similar situation, friends, we are surrounded by quote-unquote gods all the time, and we're going to talk about those in just a little bit. But by talking about our one true God, by talking about Jesus and his work, his finished work on our behalf, you know what it does? It loosens our grips on these other so-called gods in our lives. When we verbalize it, when we sing it, when we pray it, it brings to our minds everything that Jesus has done. And as we're overwhelmed and more enamored with everything that Jesus has done, we're able to loosen the grips on the things that we want to install as gods in our lives. So David had these gods of Baal, the Ashtaroth. I mean, there were lots of other quote-unquote so-called gods in the Old Testament. What are our gods? What are our gods? Here's what I see. I see, and this is a transplant to Owasso. I'm not, we've lived here for two years. Um, what I see is gods in our community. Um, children's stuffs. Children's sports. Children's academics. Uh, I see other things, hobbies. Even our loves like our spouses, uh, comfort, safety, security. Here's what's important for us as Christians to see about this. All of these things that at times we may, we may worship, they are not bad things. They're not. Cheering at your son's football game is a glorious thing. If he plays football. Because otherwise you're just cheering at someone's game and you have no relation to anyone on the field. That's more strange. Cheering at your son's football game is a great thing. Going to your daughter's ballet and taking rich pleasure in that is a great thing. Enjoying a really fun and productive hobby, that's a great thing. Having a spouse that you actually like and enjoy, oh my goodness, that's an amazing thing. An idol is not something that's inherently bad. Do you see that? An idol is not a sin, kind of over here. An idol is a good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. It's a good thing that we make into an ultimate thing. It's like all of these things that we might put in place of God, most of the time they are good things. But our tendency is not just to keep them as good things, but put them as the ultimate thing. And by speaking back the gospel to ourselves, by singing, our pray, by singing God's praise in our hearts before those things, it, it switches it around and takes God and makes him the ultimate thing. So that's what David is doing here. He is recentering his heart. And I want, you to show, I want you to see why. Why does David reject these other gods? Look at verse 2. 
Verse 2 says that God has exalted above all things two things, his name and his word. Verse 2 says he's exalted above all things his name and his word. Why would the scripture say it like that? Because it seems to me it would be a lot more simple to say, God, you've exalted above all things yourself. Or you've exalted yourself above all things. Why say it in such a strange way to say, above all things you have exalted your name and your word? What does David know that we don't know? What is he trying to communicate that we can't really see? If we start with the first one, your name, your name. In Scripture, this is really means God's entire self revealed. One theologian has said the entire storyline of Scripture is the revealing of God's name. So what does that look like practically? Um, you guys know me as Scott, right? Most of you might know my last name because it's in the bulletin. So that's cheating. Um, very few, if any of you, know my middle name, right? My son's trying to give it away over here. My family knows my middle name. Here's the thing about a name. When someone I don't know calls me by my name, you know what I say? Oh, hi, you know, good to meet you. When someone that I know much better, like one of the members of the sessions, they Scott, like we know each other pretty well. When, when my children call my name, it's an, it's an even nearer intimacy. When my wife calls my name, it's an even nearer intimacy. You know why? Because she knows the history behind my name, behind Scott, not the etymology, the etymology of the name. Scott is a name that comes from Scotland. No, 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 no. It's like, what makes me me? What makes Scott Mitchell, Scott Mitchell? And she knows that better than anyone. So when she calls upon me, when she calls my name, behind that is a richness and an intimacy that not many people know. In the same way, Scripture is framed God's name in that way. Do you know his name? And the answer is yes. Because when you were baptized, you were baptized into his name. Do you guys know that? The literal translation of Matthew 28, when Jesus is saying, go, therefore make disciples, teaching them and baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. We are baptized into his name. As a matter of fact, we just read this in our confession of faith. We have his name put upon us. So God's name is synonymous with who he really is at the root of his being. So exalt above all things, your name, but also exalt your word. What is his word? His word is what he truly wants. When you speak, you communicate your character, you communicate your desires, 
you communicate many different things. When God speaks, what he's communicating is his holy character, and out of those, what he desires for you. So what David wants, he wants God to, he has exalted above all things his name, who he really is, and his word, what he really desires. And that's help for David. Because God is not somewhere in the sky, masked off in a box where he can't be known and where we don't know what he wants. We can know. The scripture tells us so. So the psalm helps us to know God as he is. But it also gives us light for the world. Look at verses four through six. What's interesting is that we see in the psalm the promise of what occurs at Pentecost in Acts 2. At Pentecost, the promise of the gospel and the Holy Spirit comes down and goes to the nations. It's an exciting event. And in this psalm, David says that the kings of the earth, the word that he uses, shall give you thanks. That's interesting. Because at the time this psalm was written, there was no king anywhere on earth except for the king of Israel that was giving thanks to God. Of all the other nations, there was only one king giving thanks to Yahweh as their God. And so David, through the Holy Spirit, is speaking of a time not merely when the kings of the earth will bow the knee to God, let's say involuntarily. What he's talking about is when they voluntarily give him thanks and they sing of him. So this is clearly a time in the future and that we see this going forward from Pentecost onward where the gospel is going forward not merely to the Jews but to the nations and the kings of the earth here and they willingly bow the knee and they sing and they give thanks to the one true God. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean for you and me? It means that the gospel is for everyone not just the people in this gym, not just the people who are a part of Trinity. It's for everyone, even those who are currently opposed to the faith. Friends, Jesus is dead for sinners. He is dead for sinners. So the gospel is for everyone here. And then I want you to notice a strange, what I see as a strange thing in this psalm, he goes from talking about the kings of the earth giving thanks, then to talking about the lowly and the haughty in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. The kings of the earth shall give you thanks. Down in verse 6, he says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Why is that verse here? Because it seems strange in the context to go from verses 4 to 5, and then all of a sudden verse 6. There's not much context as to why verse 6 would be here. Why is it here? What's the link? I think it's important to notice that the kings in David's psalm, they're giving thanks to God. God isn't interested in them because they're kings. He's interested in them because they bowed the knee to him. Could you imagine at this time being a Gentile, you don't know anything about Judaism. 
And you live in Jesus' day, and someone gives you a Greek copy of the Hebrew Old Testament, and in it are the Psalms. And you begin reading Psalm 138, and then you go through verses 1 through 5, and you stop there. Your natural inclination would be to say, of course God loves these kings, and of course these kings are singing to him and giving praise because of their kings. They're powerful. They hold kingdoms in their hands. And what God would not want to be aligned with such kings as these? But our God doesn't operate that way. He says, oh, no, 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 no. Just so you don't get confused, these kings are not singing praise because I love them as kings. Because I love the lowly. And those who are haughty, those who are proud, they are far from me. So it gives us an idea into God's heart here. Those people who know God's name intimately, at the root are humble people. It doesn't matter if you're a king or you're a janitor. It's all the same. Help for one man. This is good news and light for the world. And finally, help to the end. Verses 7 through 8 are beautiful because David is recounting what God has done and can do. And just in closing, I want to point this out. I remember hearing the gospel preached and just different preachers preaching in early college. So this was... I don't want to date myself. This is 98 or so. And if you guys who are around in 98, you remember, I mean, this is when the internet was actually starting to kick off. When you would dial in with your dial-in modem and it'd go beep, like that. And then you wanted to download a picture and you could download a picture in 10 minutes. It was awesome. It was awesome. It was such an exciting period. There were a number of ministries and, and churches and preachers at the time began actually recording their sermons, not putting them on tape or not putting them on CD, but putting them on the internet. It was awesome. So I started to listen to these. And I remember listening to one sermon um, going, the gist of it was God is holy. God is enthroned in splendor. He is the creator, you are the creature, therefore you shall worship him. I think, well, I mean, that sounds reasonable, right? I mean, he, he does that. Here's what's interesting, friends. Scripture doesn't really talk in that way most of the time. Look at the way verses 7 through 8 read. Let me read it. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The appeal in the Psalms for us to worship him, to follow him, the appeal isn't, worship me, I demand it. 
The appeal in the Psalms is, I am with you in trouble. I preserve your life. I protect you. I deliver you. My love for you will never end. Do you see the difference? One, it's a God on high calling down to subservient creatures saying, I am the God Almighty and you will bow the knee to me. And the other is, I love you so much that I'm not going to demand your love. I'm going to woo you to myself, right? This makes sense in all of our relationships. And I've used an example like this before. Husbands, if you want to woo your wife, if you want your wife to love you more deeply, the last thing you will ever say is, wife, love me more deeply, I demand it. If you want your children to love you more, one of the last things we'll say, you would say is, I gave birth to you and you will love me and appreciate me. Friends, our God is trying to woo you to himself. And in that, what he's trying to show you is the reason you're never going to be able to leave his love is not because of your sin or disobedience or anything like that, not because of your troubles, but because he has such a firm grip on you, he will never let you go. That's our God. That's the God of Pentecost who desires that type of love of the nations. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a father. A father who loves his children well. And we ask that as we consider the Psalms, we would see your name, who you really are, your word, your real desires, and your heart coming out page after page to call us back to yourself. Through Jesus we pray, amen.